0: Hello and welcome to this IFG event on the role of technology in reaching net zero. My name is Tom Sass. I'm an Associate Director at the Institute for Government. So this government sees a green industrial revolution as central to its purpose. When he announced his 10-point plan in November, Boris Johnson invited us to imagine a country in which green lifestyles have been made convenient by a range of new technologies uh, and a country in which many British towns and regions have become synonymous with green tech. And green jobs. Yet despite the climate ambitions of successive governments, the UK's experience of the last few decades on green technology has not all been sunny. As well as successes like offshore wind, there have been a fair share of false starts with businesses and investors complaining of inconsistency and a lack of clear direction. We saw another example of that on green homes yesterday. Uh, There's growing ambition in areas like electric vehicles and hydrogen towns but the path to successful deployment won't necessarily be easy. So what does the government need to do to achieve its green industrial revolution? What should it learn from the UK's successes and failures to date? Where are the current gaps? How can it ensure changes are popular? Is there a risk of techno-optimism? We have a brilliant panel to discuss all of this. Dr. AJ Gambier is Senior Research Fellow at the Grantham Institute uh, uh, for Climate Change and Environment at Imperial College London. His work looks at the role of technology in the low carbon transition, and he has a dual background in economics and engineering, which frankly gives him an unfair advantage in the types of discussions that we'll be having today. Before becoming an academic, he worked in the UK government in the Department for Energy and Climate Change, uh, and his claim to climate stardom is that when he was there, he helped draft the UK Climate Change Act. We might even have time to ask him about that later. Georgia Berry is Director of Political Campaigns at OVO, where she works across communications, strategy and policy. OVO, for anyone who doesn't know them, are a green energy company set up in 2009 with a focus on renewables and smart technology. Uh, In 2010, it acquired the retail arm of SSE, becoming one of the UK's largest suppliers with over five million customers. Before joining OVO, Georgia worked for Theresa May as a special advisor for energy and infrastructure in the number 10 policy unit. And finally, Jurgen Meyer. Jurgen will be a familiar name to many of you. Until the start of last year, he was CEO of Siemens UK. And during his 33 years there, he held several senior roles in the UK and Germany. Under Jurgen's tenure, Siemens made several big investments, including 80 million uh, to build a wind turbine blade factory in Hull which opened in 2016, creating a thousand jobs. An engineer by background, he plays an active role advising businesses and supporting UK industry. He's currently the chair of Digital Catapult and vice chair of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. Before we get started, uh, you can submit questions using the bar at the bottom of the screen. If you include your name and where you're writing from, please try to make them short and ensure that they are questions. Uh, We'll get through as many as we can. If you like the sound of a question that someone else has asked, you can upvote it. We'll be live tweeting this event from uh, the account IFGEvents and using the hashtag ifgnetzero and we'll have a video and sound recording of the event on our website and on the ifg live podcast feed tomorrow. And lastly, I'd like to thank Imperial College London, the Transition to Zero Pollution initiative for kindly supporting this event. So AJ, uh, I want to start with you. You've done an awful lot of work looking at the role of technology in reaching net zero, both globally and in the UK. Uh, Can you set the scene for us? What's the scale of this technology challenge and how are we doing against it?
1: Thanks very much, Tom. Hopefully I'm unmuted and you can all hear me. Um, It's a big question, so I'll give you some very uh, brief thoughts and hopefully we'll be able to get into many of those details as the discussion goes on. The scale of the challenge is very big. We've seen uh, some analysis uh, by Carbon Brief over the last few days that the UK has achieved approximately a halving of its emissions over the last 30 years. Uh, So in some senses, we're halfway there, Uh, but a lot of that has happened through relatively easy fuel switching and energy efficiency. We've seen some really good progress in the UK over the last 10 years, in particular, in power sector decarbonisation. So we can now boast a pretty um, uh, low carbon intensity of electricity generation. We've seen the rise of renewables with those stunning cost reductions that we all know about. Uh, So some really good stuff in the UK and actually mirrored in other countries over the last decade or so. Um, But what really strikes me, and this is why I have kind of mixed feelings, I suppose, about the scale of the challenge, is that we've learned a lot and we've had some very pleasant surprises and experiences about low carbon technology and the fact that uh, in many cases they don't have to be uh, more expensive or worse performing than high carbon incumbent technologies. So that's all great. And that fills me with optimism. And there's a lot to learn from there. Um, but at the same time, on the slightly more pessimistic side, what strikes me about the scale of the challenge is the number of things that we have to do simultaneously across all sectors. Um, it's not really a month to waste. And since, you know, um, the, the the net zero uh, report was published by the Committee on Climate Change in May 2019 and then Theresa May um took that on board and it was set in legislation that we've got net zero in the uk now we have wasted a lot of time and we all know one big disruption of why we all know one big disruption of why we've had um uh, our attention drawn elsewhere if you like for the last year um but every day counts now there's such an intricate web of things that needs to be done to decarbonize every sector as i say simultaneously that i think the scale of the challenge is huge. It's not insurmountable, um, but, uh, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, as the discussion unfolds, we need to see a step change, a real step change in uh, ambition led by the government in the UK uh, and, you know, definitely in other countries as well. So I'll offer those as some opening thoughts and happy to delve into detail as we go on.
0: That's brilliant. And that's a really good sketching of, of the overall challenge. And just in the UK, in terms of where you see the gaps, I mean, we've we've got this kind of ten point plan from the prime minister. They've said, you know, this is not a net zero plan, but it's a it's a sort of initial document. Um, do you see the gaps as more in those sort of foundational areas, uh, foundational areas in the energy system, in the sort of looking at the role of hydrogen, or do you look more at specific sectors? So we want to kind of get towards this switch to EVs, and do you think there's a big gap
1: there? I think definitely, uh, it, it's a significant element of both. You know, we've got. technological pathway or technological pathways which are becoming increasingly proven as the days go on for things like light duty vehicles so 10 years ago we would be very doubtful about whether electric vehicles could um decarbonize the the the, the light duty vehicle transport sector but now we're much more confident that that they can there's been so much good work done in the scaling up of lithium-ion production facilities making electric vehicles longer range and more attractive compared to combustion engine vehicles so we've got technologies that um, can do the job in certain sectors but we need to see much more uh, we need to see a greater sort of driving force if you like behind those technologies and things like recent announcements of yet again cutting the, the subsidies for EVs they don't really encourage me that the government's understanding the power of these technologies to really accelerate the transition. But then at the same time, we've also got these, what you describe as foundational technology areas. And, you know, there are encouraging signs coming out of the government that they understand these technologies. So just looking at the, the low carbon industrial strategy that was released on, I think, the 17th of March, so uh, less than two weeks ago, that talks quite quite well about hydrogen and its potential role uh, about carbon capture and so on. So the talk is there and the understanding is there. There's even an understanding of the level of investment that's needed, but we do need to see those pounds uh, flowing in the right direction for us to have a sense that these are credible um, storylines about how we decarbonize those sectors like industry, uh, Mm. where we haven't made so much progress recently.
0: Brilliant, and just before turning to Jurgen, so you mentioned there the role of hydrogen, and it seems like we spend an awful lot of time in this area when discussing this topic, talking about electrification versus hydrogen, how big a sense is the UK going to go down this hydrogen path? Do you think they've done enough to kind of set out a kind of clear pathway about the direction they're moving in on that question?
1: Yeah, no, thank you very much. Um, I think this is a really complicated question, actually. Um, I don't blame the government for not having been as clear as it could be on electricity versus hydrogen, because there are many uncertainties that are there. Um, you know, we are seeing a falling cost of uh, electrolyzers to um, produce hydrogen. And so there is the promise of green hydrogen, particularly with falling renewables costs as well. Although green hydrogen is still not cost competitive with uh, blue hydrogen, you know, the, the hydrogen produced from fossil sources with carbon capture potentially. So uh, there are lots and lots of questions that need to be answered through Uh, clusters and pilots and demonstrations over the coming years. Uh, I think the clarity needs to come quite soon. As I say, though, I I understand why it would potentially be unwise for the government to say, look, we're going to do X percent through hydrogen, we're going to do Y percent through electrification. Um, There there are lots of things we need to find out still about those. So they're making the right noises about the, the potential importance of these technologies, but we do need to Start seeing the emergence of clearer signals over the coming few years, I think. brilliant,
0: thank you for that. Uh, Jurgen, so you've looked at this from you know a long career in in business and industry. Um, what makes the difference to businesses and investors in terms of the approach from government?
2: yeah, thank you uh, Tom, and uh, great to be uh, great to be speaking here at this uh, this event and uh, when i was looking at significant investments um, that the company I used to head were making in the UK. There was four things that I would always look at in terms of the sort of the general policy environment um, and the industrial environment we find ourselves in. And those four, just cantering through them very quickly, um, are the first of all is the demand um, that is generated by the the local market and uh, You know, if you take offshore uh, energy, um, we did rather brilliantly uh, at that uh, going back about a decade ago. And indeed, uh, the reason why Siemens invested so heavily is because that demand was there. It took us a long time, by the way, to gain confidence in government that they wanted to do that. Not a lot of people know that there was 10 years worth of discussions that went on before that demand was generated. But when it was, uh, that created a huge opportunity. Um, so on offshore wind we got that right, we often get that wrong um, and uh, AJ made the example of reducing um, the grant to purchase an electric vehicle just having dropped from 3000 to £2,500 which is a complete puzzle to me because that's one of the signals you'd be looking at as an investor and indeed if you're in Germany and France you've got very very generous scrappage deals uh, that make that sort of investment. Uh, or gives you more confidence for that investment. So one is all around the demand side. The second area that uh, um, I always looked at was scale. Uh, And that is particularly scale around innovation programs. So how big are these for me to come on board and put my research and innovation money to create something really quite special here so that over time we can bring the cost of our uh, technology down. And in this area, we generally do quite badly. Um, Even on offshore wind, we didn't scale our innovation ecosystem enough. Yes, we've got the offshore renewable catapult. We've got an innovation centre called Aura in Hull that uh, uh, Siemens were part of creating, but these are not scaled. And that is why the UK is still an importer of technology, even on offshore wind energy. And unless we do something very different, we will end up being importers of electrolyzers, um, of um, um, certainly uh, electrical uh, vehicle, uh, drivetrains and batteries and all of those sorts of things. So scale is particularly important. And the third area uh, is, is, let's call it industrial strategy, uh, but it's really it's long termism and it's policy coordination. So it's long term thinking. In terms of are we really going to stay behind these programs on offshore wind I think we made a great success of that for a change but generally we're not very good at it um, you uh, or AJ I think said at the outset no it was you Tom that said the green home grant scheme that got cancelled this week is a complete disaster in terms of how not to do long-termism and policy you know and to put a scheme in place That was only intended to be for a year is just a crazy scenario because you need to tie that in with the skills provision system. And it takes you more than a year to provide the skills to be able to fit homes with ground source heat pumps. So, you know, no uh, uh, long termism or industrial strategy around uh, greening our homes at all. And then the fourth area um, we're generally very good at. You'll be pleased to say, you'll be pleased to know, and that is innovation, excellence, research, excellence and skills available um, for uh, a manufacturer or technology company to come and invest. And generally, we score very well on that. We've got great excellence on hydrogen, ammonia, battery. You can go to many of our universities or catapults. The issue really is, as I've said at the beginning, is about scaling uh, those uh, those initiatives. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the areas.
0: That's brilliant and fascinating insight into your experience there. I suppose if you take those four things and apply that to what you see as the government's plans to the extent that it's set those out now, do you think you know, broadly some of those successes that they had on offshore, or maybe you, know, you can translate that a little bit over to some of the industrial challenges, we've got a bit of a skill base, we've got some of the research with a bit of investment that could work. Is it gonna hold us back some of those weaknesses a bit more in the other areas you were discussing? know if you've got a lack of political commitment and actually in electric vehicles or homes that becomes a really big problem what do you think if you apply that lens
2: well you can certainly see all of the ingredients but they're not particularly well joined up and they're not particularly well scaled Um, so aj was talking about green hydrogen Uh, the 10 point plan that you talked about before had 240 million as a commitment for green hydrogen last week we saw the industrial decarbonisation strategy, which had 171 million for nine different programs. And you've got to piece it all together. And in the end, it doesn't actually make enough. And then you go over the water and you compare that to Germany's green hydrogen plan. And there is a 7 billion bold investment Uh, for industry and investors to get behind to scale up green hydrogen because as AJ rightly says it's not cost competitive yet but remember neither was offshore wind when we started and it's only through that sort of innovation scale that you can really bring the cost down and if we allow Germany to do all of that and other countries then we'll end up being a net importer of technology again.
0: Mm -hmm. Brilliant we'll we'll come back to lots of that um, through the discussion. Georgia, I wanted to turn to you. Um, First of all, before we get onto your your current role, um, sitting in number 10, when you were advising Theresa May and sort of in government more widely, how do these challenges of supporting the development and deployment of technology look from the sort of position of right in the heart of government?
3: Thanks, Tom, and also um, fantastic to be here. Um, So I think the real challenge is, um, you know, understandably, when it comes to sort of politics and being in the in the heart of it is consumer acceptability you know how are we going to achieve the targets that we've set as a country how are we going to get there um but equally how are we going to bring the public with us and frankly hold our nerve as a government to getting there um and you're up against quite a number of uncertainties because of course You've got technology uncertainty. You don't know how much certain costs are going to come down or not come down. You've got consumer acceptability uncertainty. Will a certain technology fly ultimately with consumers? Um, you have political uncertainty. Um, and it's, uh, it, it leaves for a sort of a punchy challenge. And I'll just to give an example, when I went into number 10, I was set the target of, you know, in our European context, how can you bring down the cost of electricity? That's your task, and that's a very tough task. When we had the commitments we had for decarbonizing the power sector, and ultimately at that point in time, we didn't have net zero enshrined in the 2050 target, but we still were, you know, very much moving in this direction of travel. So I think, um, you know, that's what you're up against as a, you know, in the political uh, sort of milestone. What I would say is, um, you know, so reducing that uncertainty as much as possible is essential. And I think net zero, well, the Climate Change Act initially, fantastic. And then net zero has really helped reduce uncertainty in one direction, which is that we know that we have to reach these targets. So at least from a policy setting perspective, you're not spending a lot of time trawling through the debate of, are we going to go back to coal, or are we going to do X or Y? You know, you've at least got clarity of direction, which is fantastic. Um, I think the next, uh, you know, question, really, and where it's more, you know, tougher for politicians, is this question of cost. And the 10-point plan is, I think, very exciting. It's a bold ambition. You know, it's a range of um, sectors, targets, etc., that again, you know, provide direction of travel. The tricky bit will be when you start putting price tags to all of this, as both well as Jürgen's just mentioned. Um, And having that sort of uh, combination of an honest discussion with the public, but also thinking about how to alleviate that burden on the public as well. And that will be, I would say, tougher than ever this year, given what we've all been through. Um, and how we expect things to evolve in the next year with um, the sort of the crunch ultimately coming off the back of, you know, uh, unemployment, et cetera. So um, I think whilst I admire the government's 10-point plan, I think we've, um, where, I, and I can understand entirely what they're grappling with internally, we are going to have to give some sort of faith to our public, really, that say, right, it is the time to have a more, Um, open debate and discussion that there will be disruption, there will be behaviour change required, there will be cost elements to achieving net zero, but we are going to do this in the fairest way that we can. The slightly disappointing thing, again, not to repeat what Jürgen and AJ have just said, but the recent string of policies, there have been high-level announcements which are great, but then there have been actual policies that have been announced or changes to policy that are less inspiring. So um, the EV grant cut the reduction in um, air passenger duty for domestic flights, um, the uh, not considering VAT on low carbon technologies. So obviously when it comes to heat and decarbonizing homes. Um, and then um, the, uh, the Green Homes Grant, as has already been mentioned. So whilst we've got these high level ambitions, we've also got some some pretty uh, immediate uh, policy levers that are either sort of being changed or going in the opposite direction. So we we just need to think about how we're going to balance those out. And time is critical now, you know, and they are. I I do believe they're moving very fast as fast as they can in terms of identifying best routes forward. Um, But, yeah, again, as AJ said, we've hardly got a month to spare because it's the next 10 years, which makes a real difference.
0: And I'm really glad you, you've brought us into the sort of debate around costs of all this, because obviously there's, as, as you, uh, AJ and Jergen have said, you know, a big question about investment to bring costs down. But there's also a big question about what costs the government expects the public to bear, you know, whether that's for switching their vehicle or replacing that their gas boiler or whatever. And do you think politicians are yet sort of showing themselves to be willing enough to confront some of these costs involved in in sort of switching to net zero? Because so far we've sort of talked a lot about some of the attractive investment type discussion, but perhaps a bit less about, you know, some of these payments, which ultimately we will need to be paid for.
3: Yes. Um, So what I'm sort of seeing at the moment is that there is a lack of willingness to talk about costs at what I call the retail end. Mm. So uh, costs that are visible to consumers. Um, uh, for example, um, you know, what you may need to pay to change your heating system, um, uh, you know, what you may need to change, pay to change your lifestyle overall. Um, I think that that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Um, but it's a, it's, it's basically a timing issue, I think, and no one is going to sort of take that on right now. Um, take it back to my point that ultimately we're going to have a have to have a frank conversation with the public that there is cost involved but that we are going to do or the government's going to do its best to make that as fair and as just as possible um what i would say though as well is um i do think there is an enormous amount that can be done to reduce that burden on households and that's not just about sort of price tags or government paying up front you know i don't actually agree with sort of full grant-led schemes overall. I think that grants can play an incredibly important, critical role, but I don't think they should ever, you know, play the entire role. And you can pull on other levers as government, that are incredibly powerful to bring down costs overall. So whether you're talking regulatory levers, whether you're talking training and skills, um, uh, whether you're talking, um, looking at um, uh, sort of reducing burdens that already exist, um, to incentivize these markets, um, I think I think it's getting that policy and regu- regulatory landscape right to bring down cost and reduce friction at each level in every area. That's that proper creative policy making, that is what needs to be focused on now to, to reduce burden on households overall.
0: Mm, that's brilliant. And you've taken us into sort of how this looks from the consumer angle. Of course, you have a lot of consumers signed up at at Ovo, And I suppose the other half of that question as well is just simply how much of are people paying on their electricity bills? And that is where quite a lot of these decarbonisation costs have been put over the last decade or so. The other half is kind of what's the consumer proposition? You know, what are, what are consumers getting from this sort of shift in technology? And I know that's something that Ovo looks at quite a bit in terms of, you know, integration with other areas. Did you want to talk about that a
1: bit?
3: Yeah. And, and actually, this is where I'm incredibly optimistic, and not just because I work for Ovo, just because I believe in this overall from a, a whole systems approach. Is we have got this extraordinary um, uh, uh, renewables, uh, you know, renewable sector now that has gone incredibly well. Um, we should be reaping the benefit of that. Um, I am a pretty strong believer in the use of or uh, use of flexibility. So basically designing our evolving energy system around households around the consumer allowing them to participate like sort of almost as if they are their own mini power station in terms of their use of energy when they use it how they you know when they can store it in their electric vehicle or you know other technologies in their household and when they can feed it back into the grid and I see that as a complete win-win because you're um Not only are you maximizing the penetration of renewable use and you're not wasting that, you are reducing the amount of investment you have to put into large baseload, whether you're talking nuclear, a few more CCGTs to get you over the line, whatever it might be. Um, But also there is an opportunity for consumers to save money. And this is the key, because ultimately we could design an energy system where people can profit from it. Um, I would say one of the barriers to entry here, of course, is getting the technology into people's homes. And that's where the your question about customer propositions come in, comes in and is so key is um how do you get an EV into someone's house? You know, all the and everything that goes alongside, sorry, not literally in their house, that could be a bit tricky. Um uh and you know, how do you get heat pumps into their houses, etc.? And um that's that sort of barrier, I suppose, to a, a more flexible system um, is, to my mind, where this combination of all the different moving parts of the energy industry come together. So you have government policy, government regulation, but all, equally from the role of the supplier, we have to completely transform ourselves away from pass-through agents of kilowatt hours, as we, you know, role we may have traditionally played, to Decarbonisation delivery partners who are thinking right, what is an attractive consumer proposition um, around these technologies? How do we make them affordable? What is the financing involved? You know, how do you um, uh, how do you basically make people aware of them? What are the economies of scale? What are the benefits for them? So I think. Um, you know the, again, I come back to this point of sort of harnessing the creativity of the private sector and working in collaboration with this range of actors beyond government. Government can't do this on its own, private sector can't do this on its own, et cetera, et cetera. So um we've got to make this as appealing as possible for consumers, but i'm I'm actually very optimistic about a flexible energy system.
0: Brilliant. Well, well lovely to have that optimism uh, on the panel. Uh, we've got lots of questions flying in from the audience. I'm going to turn to those in a second, but I'm uh, going to pose a couple more questions before I do that. AJ, I wanted to come to you on this question of how 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 we make this technology transformation acceptable to the public. You know, we've heard there from Jürgen and from Georgia, you know, quite a lot of costs need to be paid. There's questions around how attractive it is to kind of shift over to some of these technologies which are still sort of developing. How do you see that overall balance on the sort of individual household? How do we kind of make it seem a a really attractive transition to you?
1: I think Georgia presented some really interesting ideas there and uh, I think a much needed dose of optimism as well. Personally, I've struggled a lot actually over the last few years to see how how can we learn, are there lessons we can learn from kind of attractiveness to the consumer that's come about through electric vehicles um you know a few years ago electric vehicles were seen as kind of oddities full of range anxiety Um, much to the credit of tesla they became sort of more desirable better software potentially more reliable lower servicing costs faster smoother you know just a sort of better experience and just happened to be electric and potentially low carbon it is sort of thrown into the bargain and I've struggled a lot to see if we can draw parallels with that to make other technologies which may be perhaps more prosaic technologies attractive to consumers but if what Georgia says is right and you know I'm I'm definitely willing to believe her then that can be done with low carbon building uh, heating for example you know can we start to demonstrate through the right sort of grant or the right sort of support scheme for early adopters that heat pumps are reliable, they're attractive, they're effective ways of rapidly heating our homes um, and then get some momentum going in the same way that has happened with electric vehicles. Uh, Can we do the same through sort of ultra high efficiency housing? You know, people will really enjoy the benefits of living in well-insulated homes that retain their heat you know without with a sort of minimum of heating and they retain their cool in the summer and so on and so forth these technologies are there and we know that they work um, they are at the moment in some cases more expensive and I think it is undeniable that there is an upfront cost still to be paid there is a huge distributional issue around that and sort of you know smearing costs over electricity bills or energy bills we know that there's a a regressiveness to that, that we can maybe avoid going forward. Um, so there's definitely an aspect there in terms of the distributional uh, nature of where these costs fall. Um, but yeah, I think there's this real opportunity to now get these mature, now they're quite mature, technologies out there and uh, into certain early adopters' homes. Um, You know, certainly in new build homes, there's no excuse to not be building those with low carbon heating technologies and as well insulated as they can possibly be. And then they're in the real world. Then they sort of they're not just on the they're not just in the computer models of analysts like me or lines on graphs. They're then being experienced as uh, real um, technologies which which are helping people in different ways P- many people may be actually prepared to pay more um, for these technologies in the near term and of course that will as Jürgen was um, alluding to quite a lot in his opening remarks be one of the sort of key um, uh, driving forces of then scaling up and then reaping those sort of scale economies and cost reductions mm-hmm. so um, no sort of killer thoughts there in terms of how we can get around the fact that for the time being there are some costs to be borne. Um, But I think that consumers will start to appreciate the multiple co-benefits of these technologies once they experience them firsthand.
0: Mm. And perhaps a a question if if the Elon Musk of the green homes world is out there ready to make it a more attractive proposition then they could step forward. Um, Jürgen, I wanted to turn to you on this sort of international dimension to all of this. You mentioned very interestingly, you know, Germany's very large programme of support and particularly going down the hydrogen route. And there's quite a big sense in which no country is going to make choices about low carbon technologies in isolation. You know, all of the choices the UK makes are in a much bigger context. That's what China's doing. That's what the EU is doing. So, I mean, how should the UK see that? problem because it's are there some areas where actually it should think other countries are much further ahead of us not not worth us getting involved or should it just always be thinking how can we sort of domesticate the 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 greatest benefits here because you, you said that didn't quite happen with offshore
2: yeah well it seems to me that you know the key technologies that are going to help us decarbonize in the medium term and by medium i sort of mean know to reach our goals by 2050 that's medium term for me because that means you've got to be implementing at scale by 2030 and it seems to me the technologies that are going to create that are are known now so this is not the debate about picking winners which i think you know we spend far too much time on we know which the winners are going to be um and it's going to be At the generation end, it's going to be uh, hydrogen, a combination, of course, um, there of also still needing some gas and carbon capture. Um, And at the demand end, it's going to be technologies like ground source heat pumps, like electric vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, actually, I don't think we talk enough about. So we know what the key technologies are going to be. So therefore, it's just a choice as to how much of a global leader do we want to be in those you know and your point is absolutely right Tom you know we are not going to be the leader on any of those um, but you know are we going to be amongst the leaders and, uh, and and develop them I mean there's maybe one slight exception to that and that is tidal energy that's actually one of the questions that has come in um, now I don't actually think tidal energy in the scale of things is going to be anywhere near as big as offshore energy or as hydrogen but there is an opportunity um, for for tidal and the UK seems to be in a pretty strong position given our coastline uh, to develop that more and then become a developer of the technology and an exporter of the technology uh, as well so but it's just a question of how much we want to scale and develop these technologies and I think we should be scaling them all a lot more mm.
0: that's really helpful and another one for you Jag and this one sent in from Henry Bertlin who asks will the government's emphasis on supporting British industry and science over multinationals help or hinder Uh, decarbonisation?
2: Well, I mean, I'm not seeing any particular push towards it needing to be British over multinational. What I am seeing is is it needs to be local. Um, And, you know, multinationals can be very local and the company that I used to uh, uh, lead in the UK was a total example of that It was multinational but very local. So I think the right way to do this, is to create the right sort of incentives for local or international companies to to invest locally and scale up locally. And that comes right back to the points I was making in my my introduction, which is to create the right environment, both from a regulation and from a scale and demand point of view, to allow companies uh, to do that. So I don't think it matters what the origin of the company is, it's where they're doing it.
0: Yeah, got you. And I mean, that, that takes us to a useful point about at what's, what level decisions need to be made. So I wonder if I could turn this one to you, Georgia, um, you know, we've got a question here from Claire Dory. She says, uh, what do you think the role of local government needs to be in net zero? And we've talked a lot so far about the technology choices faced in, in Whitehall and Westminster, but there's a lot of regulators out there, there's local authorities. So what do you think about that broader process?
3: I think it's a really it's a it's a key question um so I would say just at the just coming sort of back to basics at the top level my my personal view is that we need to even at sort of you know when it comes to Westminster need to join the dots more about the power of local uh you know and the role of local in achieving net zero and we should start as a you know Bit of a no-brainer to set up the equivalent to OLEV you know the Office for Low Emission Vehicles um but for heat so um decarbonizing our homes but of course being a um combination of the business department bays and MCHLG I can oh, never quite say that one right <laughs>
1: okay, enough, yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> um uh, just as a as an absolute starter to recognize that you know we are moving into sectors now um, but, you know, for example, decarbonising de- decarbonizing our homes, which is really about local solutions. Um, and then in terms of decision making, I think um, you're still going to need uh, central government backed programmes to drive scale, innovation, etc. in these areas. So whether you're talking grants around heat pumps with the clean heat grant coming up, whether you're talking um, major regulatory signals. So for one, um, uh, I would see that, you know, uh, from 2030 onwards, off gas grid homes, no brainer that they shouldn't have um, gas boilers in them anymore or EPC uh, rated C homes and upwards. You know, these are the kind of more heat pump ready homes. So you can do all of that from a government level, um, wide scale um, training skills, et cetera, but, when it really comes to kind of homes and people allowing that disruption um, into their houses, changing the way they do things, the way they've done things for years, um, there's two things, two massive advantages to local. Firstly, you're far more likely to trust something if it's coming uh, in your direction locally. So whether you're saying, you know, you're hearing it from a trusted local engineer, whether you're hearing it from your, um, you know, your sort of your or your local council has a specific program relating to it, something that you know already, because it is quite unnerving um, making these change, you know, adopting these technology changes. So there's the trust element of and the power that local um, uh, local actors have, but then there's also the reduction of friction costs uh, if you're doing um, programs in uh, decarbonizing heat. So, w- for example, we. Um, at OVO are already installing heat pumps but we started with social housing and with off gas grid housing but with social housing because of course you can build up that little bit of scale but it's easier to achieve that and um, just by having a group of houses that's going to adopt a heat pump all at the same time as opposed to one customer at a time is, is a lot easier and again as I say reduces the cost. So that's two immediate upsides. Uh thirdly of course, um local solutions are often best. Um still need certain technologies to be able to flow and be supported from central government, but sometimes local solutions um are going to fit better to that particular environment. Um and um and then uh what else would I would say so I'm just thinking on the local side. yeah, I mean, all in all, I think it's an incredibly important role for local authorities to be playing in decarbonisation now around um electrification of vehicles, homes, and the, the everything that relates to the retail market, um and frankly, it can put pressure on central government to do things. Mm. You know, if you're moving fast at city level, you know that is an increased pressure to say, you know we can achieve this in Birmingham, we can achieve this in Manchester, in Leeds we can achieve this um, at a broader level. So I'm a a big supporter of local solutions.
0: That's a a fascinating answer. Thank you, Georgia. And sort of you bring up the point about local government coordination of this. And one of the comparisons that people often make is to the last big, huge technological switch from town gas to natural gas. And in that case, we went street by street and sort of just said, "We're, we're ripping it out and it's happening today sort of thing. How would you see that role of sort of energy companies coordinating with local authorities? Do you think it is a case of trying to get a whole street signed up to a particular type of change and then using that scale to then get an investment in behind it? or Because it's quite a tricky coordination problem, that, isn't it?
3: It is. It is. It's really tricky. And because, of course, you know, you don't know. For example, let's just say you're coming from the role of a retailer you don't know that everybody on that street is signed up to the same energy company. So straight off, you've got that challenge. You know, everyone um, might have different um, suppliers and, um, you know, want very different things. But that being said, you can definitely have local programs and local campaigns to um, support and sort of incentivize a rollout of whether it's heat pumps, um, let's say, or actually one of the big ones has been, of course, electric vehicle charge points, because the real, um, you know, the real gap, the capacity gap has been much more on urban streets as opposed to actually on sort of, um, you know, motorways and other areas. So um, so I do, I do think there is um, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of potential there to, as they say, kind of bring back, bring down um, friction costs also, if you've got training in a certain area of engineers in, to become heat pump installers, so MCS accredited, then you've got more people in your area who can install, repair, support the whole um, transition to um, electric heat, which is an upside. But it's not its not straightforward. I mean, I'm not going to pretend for a minute that um, there aren't still quite a number of consumer challenges that need to we need to, to do a lot of learning yeah. to overcome.
0: AJ, we've got a few questions coming in about carbon capture and storage. Um, obviously, you know, it could potentially be quite an important area. We're not going to get rid of all our emissions by 2050. Um, but there is a bit of a risk, some people say, of relying too much on that and sort of using that as an excuse not to push forward in other areas. Do you, how do you see that problem and do you think the government's sort of doing enough so far in the support it is offering for that sector?
1: yeah really interesting question It feels as though in the uk we're in we're kind of experiencing carbon capture and storage version 3.0 we i i worked in the government um around the first competition um uh, and saw that collapse and uh, i left the government. At the beginning, I think, of the the, the next attempt at the competition uh, and then saw that collapse. Um, saw the removal of the £1 billion uh, pounds of funding uh, with, no, with no great announcement, actually, um, uh, a few years later. And then everything went quiet for a while. And we've now seen a, a much more encouraging set of signals around carbon capture and storage. The right set of signals in terms of understanding that there needs to be some... Uh, spatial clustering so that we can get the transport, uh, the CO2 transport networks in place so that hopefully we can reap economies of scale. Uh, A bit more of an understanding that there are many different types of carbon capture and storage. So, you know, a lot of the early focus was on uh, CCS with coal-fired power generation, but of course, luckily now coal-fired power generation is becoming sort of um, consigned to history in the UK. uh, And there's much more understanding that industrial decarbonisation is likely to be quite reliant uh, uh, on carbon capture and storage, as well as, um, you know, hydrogen and electrification of industrial heat processes as well. So that's all to the good. And uh, as I said earlier, it makes a good um, appearance in the industrial decarbonisation strategy. The key question though is have the lessons from the past been learned? CCS is really difficult. It's really hard to overcome that first sort of risky hurdle of getting a um, commercial scale functioning, high performing CCS system of the capture, uh, the transport and the sequestration in place. Um, we really do, in my view, and the modelling that I and colleagues have done, the sort of simulations of the transition to the low carbon future do support this. We really do need to get CCS right. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near the point of uh, it being a danger of something that we're overly relying on um, for the future, either in terms of carbon capture and storage from point sources or um, the carbon capture that comes from dispersed sources, direct air capture, for example. Mm. I think we can probably have a bit more of a nuanced discussion of the techno-optimism around CCS in five or ten years time when we've actually got this thing at commercial scale on the ground. Then we can sort of start to worry about whether we're overly relying on it. For now, I think we really, really need carbon capture and storage and industrial decarbonisation. And we really need to start developing direct air capture, um, perhaps in the UK, but certainly as part of international efforts. Not as a substitute for near-term deep decarbonisation action, but as an insurance, really, to add to that decarbonisation action as we go sort of further through the decades in this century. um, Mm -hmm. Because there will be some really tough sectors to decarbonise and we will need to uh, most likely offset their residual emissions with some degree of emissions removal um, from CCS and related technologies. Uh, so, you know, I'm not worried about um, over-reliance on CCS at the moment. I really think we need to get that suite and grouping of technologies out there um, and at the same time get on with the lower-hanging fruit uh, and, and and sort of get decarbonisation started at scale in this next decade. Mm.
0: No, it's a very well put that we're we're not in the position yet to worry about being techno-optimists. Um, Jürgen, I wanted to bring you in on that question around, you know, we've got this plan for... Industry and what do you what what you think about what the government said there? I also wanted to put to you another question asked by Anna, who says what the panelists think about the scrapping of the industrial strategy council, uh, and and the sort of you moving away from having an a, an industrial strategy. Do you think that's going to be a hindrance in terms of some of these questions of pushing technologies on?
2: Um, well, I, I sat on the Industrial Strategy Council um, so and uh, and I'm not a great fan of it being scrapped because actually, I mean, what will happen is it will just transition into something new. Um, and what it will transition into is, is the new Build Back Better uh, plan for growth, or at least that's what we're being told. Um, but again, this is all just the wrong signals to the marketplace about um, Long termism and about strategy, um, and uh, you know, and we now have to. Uh to as a as a business community, we now have to engage with government to make sure the new Build Back Better Plan is more strategic, is more, more coherent, and we drive it forward. So and I have no doubt that we will get, you know, a rewrite and uh, and it will look slightly different. But it's just, you know, we're not very good at long-termism. Yeah, I've actually written a blog on it this morning. It's on my blog site. So uh, if you're interested, go and have a look at that, jurgenmeyer.co.uk
0: excellent. Thanks for that, Jagan. Um I wanted to ask uh, a question about skills that's also come up uh, from from several questioners in particular, whether government, central government, let's let's start with for now, has the kind of skills that it needs to make some of these quite difficult questions and make some of these quite difficult choices about technology. So Georgia and then AJ, having both sort of spent a bit of time in in government, do you think we've got, you know, engineering skills, sort of scientific skills needed to look at these choices? Because a lot of those skills exist in the private sector.
3: Uh so that, that's a that's a very good, very tough question. I mean, obviously, it's also slightly depends on kind of timing because of course, you know, who's in there at what point. Um my experience is um as much as possible we need to draw on the um, you know, the scientific skills that we have across the board in the country. They don't all necessarily need to work for government or be within government, but um They are really, really complicated questions, complicated decisions, um, and they should not be made lightly. Um, And there should be rigorous checks and balances. And they should, in terms of the amount of sort of political sway that um, is at play, and the whole sort of, you know, uh, yeah, the sort of the politics of it needs to not overwhelm. What is clear science? What is evidence based, you know, data backed, rigorous um, research to guide directions of travel? So I think, do we have the resources in the country? Unquestionably. Um, And it's just making sure that um, that we use them appropriately. Mm. Um, uh, And in terms of the current makeup of government, I I don't think I could comment of, Mm. uh, you know, right now, but um, I think we just have to make use of what we've got. Mm.
0: And AJ, I mean, you're you're at the Grantham Institute, which is obviously a sort of leading centre for looking at these quite complex questions and doing the modelling. You were in government when DEC still existed and, you know, you had a sort of centre for that kind of thinking in government at the time. Do you have a sense on whether, you know, you think you you look at what's coming out of government and think, you know, they've got the, the kind of knowledge and expertise that they need in there?
1: I think that... From the, from the evidence of, of the kind of statements that are coming out from the, the government, the, the detailed um, industrial decarbonisation strategies, the language around the need to decarbonise, obviously the, the supporting evidence that's gone into the 10 point plan, my sense is that that's solid and that there are civil servants and policy officials uh, in the government that have really excellent science and engineering backgrounds and really get um, the technological challenges um, because of the focus that i've had in my career both academically and before that in the government i don't know the extent to which that's also so true on the behavioral change side and we haven't of course talked so much about the behavioral change side um, and the degree to which technological change is so intertwined with um, uh, behavioral change as well. I think, you know, we we, we talk to uh, quite a lot about con- consumer acceptance and so on, but there are many aspects to it as well. Um, I think what I worry about perhaps more is whether there is the commercial and project management experience within government to uh, undertake this incredibly complex and holistic transition that we need to undertake. And I think I go back to my opening comments where the thing that um, perhaps gives me the greatest sort of sense of pessimism or doubt about the transition is the number of moving parts and the sheer complexity of things that need to happen at the same time. So I think that that commercial and project management set of skills is um, something that if the government doesn't have, it needs to get pretty quickly. Uh, And then the final point is, I don't know so much about the sort of skills around uh, net zero and decarbonisation at the local government level. But I'm convinced by George's argument that the local level is incredibly important here. Uh, You know, a number of local authorities have declared climate emergencies and there's evidence that they are starting to get this. Um, But I would really like to hope that there will be a a rapid upskilling of um, uh, local government officials in this area as well.
0: Mm. that's a really good point and it's a point that we've discussed a little bit in some of our research on this too we're coming up to the end of time i wanted to throw one more question at you aj and then i'm going to come to Jergen. so the final question aj was just about this concept of sort of systems approach systems engineering you often hear sort of engineers say the net zero challenge it's not just about supporting a range of different technologies it's actually about these technologies coming together and being integrated and and, and taking a sort of full systems approach. Um that's easy to sort of say in a sort of, you know, from the outside or, or from a sort of looking at a model that an engineer might create. How do you actually go about achieving that if you're sort of sitting in government? Do you think it, it requires a different kind of approach um, to the one that we're seeing at the moment?
1: Yeah, it's a really complicated question. I'm really keen to to hear from, from more from Jürgen. So I'll be quick on this. I think... Um, you know, we need the phrase we need systems thinking is, is a sort of a bit of a cliche, really. And it needs quite quite some degree of substantiation to be meaningful. I think that um, we need a lot of joining up across government departments because there are so many departments that are responsible for different bits of decarbonisation of the energy and agricultural and land systems in the UK. Um, you know, there needs to be serious reflection going back to my earlier points on sort of project management angle around whether there needs to be a a very sort of holistic delivery body uh, for for net zero. Um, It can't be left to to, to fall just to to individual departments to to deliver different parts of the system together because they will end up uh, with trade-offs and clashes and so on and so forth. So uh, I think and hope that there's serious thinking going on in the government around You know, how can we have some kind of central delivery body that doesn't um, uh, let anything slip and is making sure that one department's um, progress on decarbonisation of one part of the system is not conflicting or contrasting with another part. So Mm. I'll I'll leave it there.
0: Mm. Brilliant. Jürgen, I'll come to you on that. And then I'm going to give each of my panellists a chance to say, well, is the one thing they would like to see from government in the sort of next sort of months that would, that would show they're serious about this question of technology and and net zero. But first, if you wanted to come, come back on that question of systems approach.
2: Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with the, uh, with AJ and actually, I mean, that allows me to finish with some sort of, uh, you know, positive, uh, um, Um, Commentary, which is that, uh, you know, systems integration is something we in the UK are very good at. Uh, um, You know, we're not often the creators of some of the core technology, um, but in terms of integrating the technologies and putting the software around them and putting the systems together, I think we're we're, we're generally pretty good. And I think that is a capability we should look to strengthen and is a capability we can export as well. Um, One thing that I do think we need to do more of is to be open minded more between the different technologies. There was one question in the chat about you know, hydrogen um, versus electric and uh, particularly talking about cars and Elon Musk. Well, you know, for me, this is not versus, it's and. Um, and, I, and I'm and i convinced we're going to need hydrogen cars as well as electric cars. And indeed, I've, I'm advising a company, a hydrogen car company called River Simple. Um, and uh, the River Simple hydrogen car weighs less than the batteries in a Tesla. Um, now I just say that because you know if everybody wants to put a Tesla and charge it um, at high capacity in their street in London, then the grid is not going to be able to cope with it, and the energy demand won't cope. So you're going to have to have different approaches for uh, for different uh, for different scenarios, and we need to be very open-minded to those and plan our systems around around yeah. those different scenarios.
0: Yeah. And what's the one thing you'd like to see in the coming months, Jagan, if I can put you on the spot?
2: Um, Well, I think it's around these technologies that we're talking around to see a more coherent, long term and scaled strategy uh, to really give the uh, confidence for uh, investors to to come on board and invest at scale. And if we do that, then I think we can absolutely uh, create the technologies to meet our uh, net zero uh, targets.
0: Great. Uh, so high hopes for the government's net zero plan when that comes out later this year. Georgia, what's what's your one final calling parting shot?
3: Uh, my parting shot would be um, well twofold, if I'm allowed. Um, firstly, just to actually really back up what AJ said about coordination between all the different departments, all the different areas. Decarbonisation is so intertwined; they can't be treated as separate issues. So, so that one. Um, and then actually looking um, or thinking very, very seriously about how we are going to get ourselves off gas. Um, gas will play a role in certain areas for a little while. How are we getting off gas? So, I mean, clear signals to the market that gas for use in domestic heating is no longer going to be acceptable beyond uh, 2030 or not far after that. Um, and, you know, whole, Uh, how are we going to move our whole economy away from gas so my personal uh, sort of economic policy that would back that up is um, you know I have to admit I am a fan of properly pricing pollution and that should also um, include uh, domestic gas ultimately so that that would be mine.
1: Okay Um, AJ. Well, I'm glad mine's complementary to both of those, with which I really, really strongly agree. Um, but quite simply, it would be meaningful investment from the government in the billions. Um, quite frankly, sick of scratching through, um, you know, Rishi Sunak's budget statements and trying to add up the few million here and the few million there. And it goes back to what Jürgen I think, was saying at the beginning. And, you know, maybe it all adds up to 100 or 200 million and then You look over the continent and you see these serious multi-billion investments, which is what's needed. It shouldn't all be done by the government, far from it. But meaningful investment at the order of billions is what's needed to crowd in the the, the big investment from the private sector that's going to make this happen. I know it's easy for me to say, I know I don't have a massive, massive post-COVID budget to pay off. But nevertheless, if we are going to have a green recovery from COVID, then this is the way to do it.
0: Thank you, AJ. Uh, Brilliant. So, um, fantastic shopping list there for the government uh, to focus on and also a really rich discussion about where the UK can seek to leverage some of the advantages that it does have uh, on this question of green technology. Um, That's all we've got time for. Uh, Thank you very much to a brilliant panel. Uh, Thank you to you for questions. Thank you to Imperial College London, the Transition to Zero Pollution Initiative for sponsoring this event. Uh, A couple of things to flag. We've got a report coming out later this week on heat decarbonisation, some of the past policy failures there and some ideas for what the government might do to accelerate that. Uh, We've also got some work upcoming in the next couple of months on how to support the green recovery, picking
1: up on that last point of AJ's. So do watch out for those uh, and goodbye for now.